Hello, it's Ooh. the Big Brain Time Podcast. I am your host, Graham. And I'm Will. And today we're going to be talking about everybody's favorite human rights abuser, Assad. This will be an interesting episode. We're going to go over Russia and Syria, Russia and the Arctic, maybe a bit about China, and then some good old-fashioned Ethiopian civil war. I love that. It's what, the like, third one, fourth one? I, I don't really know. Oh, yeah. A lot of them. Yeah. Anyways, Russia is uh, pursuing an interesting policy of involvement involving bombing a lot of hospitals in Syria. Yeah, it's, it's, they're trying to um, keep the Assad regime up. But looks like they're trying to compete with U.S. military power. It's like a, almost another form of a second... Um, it's like a, almost like a repeat of Afghanistan, but this time they're doing a lot better. Yeah, and they're they're hiring a lot of uh, private military contractors in the region, trying yeah, to you know, like yeah. Instead of sending in their massive military this time, this time they've more gone for uh, arm the military contractors and use their pretty well equipped air force to do carry out strategic strikes while the Syrian uh, loyalist forces and private military military contract does a lot of the groundwork. Ground, uh, yeah, groundwork. Yeah. Also, a random fun fact uh, that might also explain one of the reasons they have that there is because um, the Russians actually have a military base in Syria, and it's the only one they have outside of the former USSR. Well, I don't think so that they want to. Well, they want to maintain stability in the region, which is probably why they're supporting Assad. Yeah, that's probably definitely a big factor in that. I think it's also more of a. It's also like a as a double. Um, like there's a double effect for that. It's more of the them telling the world that hey, we're here now and we're we're back as a world power. I guess. I think it's Putin showing the Western world that they've recovered from the uh, USSR's collapse and are now ready to strut their stuff again. Yeah, I mean, Putin's actually stepping down soon. Apparently, he has Parkinson's or something. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, and that's right after he passed a law that says that the president, he's trying to, that the president can't be indicted for any crimes, any like the, any historical presidents of Russia. Well, that does seem like a logical progression of... Yeah, yeah that things. it does. But yeah... I mean, I don't know. Honestly, the conflict in Syria doesn't really look like it's ending anytime soon. Yeah. yeah with the rebels. I mean, yeah, I mean, we'll see, I guess. A lot of people are involved in the war, though. A lot of them, yeah, because there's a big proxy war going on, you know? Like. Oh, yeah. There's, you got... Oh, there's like a lot of them. And the Turkish intervened a little while back, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to occupy all of this now. Yeah, and then. Yeah. A little bit scared of Russia. It says. Surprisingly, though, the Russians have lost eight or um, eight planes and seven helicopters in their bombings. Yeah. Which means that the. I mean, did he fail there? They are fighting U.S.-backed forces as well in the um, Revolutionary Commando Army. So. Oh, you're right. Yeah, I forgot about that. So they're probably armed with lock-on missiles and more advanced technology. Yeah. They can probably shoot down Russian planes. That's the big difference between the U.S. and Russia, especially in their involvement with the Middle East. Like the Russians, they they don't really have as much of an image to maintain as the U.S. does. So. Yeah, they're fine that's with. True. With losing a couple planes and a couple hundred men. Yeah. Well, yeah, the U.S. has to be a lot more controlled in the Middle East. Yeah. Like, especially with, like, Obama. Obama lost a lot of popularity because of his drone strike policy. Yeah, he did. That's a... Yeah, Russia certainly doesn't have to carry, worry about their image as much as the U.S. does. Yeah, not even close. Yeah. It's interesting how the Chinese involvement will come to play in this conflict once 
their belt and road initiative spreads out a bit more. Uh, I don't know if China really wants to dip a finger in Syria, honestly. Well, not Syria in specific, but in the whole Middle Eastern conflicts. I wonder if we'll ever see them participating in one in the future. Probably at some point to secure interest in like a Belt and Road. I'm not sure if there's been any reports of Chinese. I think they might have a couple personnel to protect their interests in Africa with their ports there, but I don't know yeah, if they maintain a large sense. military presence. Uh, I mean, I know like uh, the China essentially has treaty ports, like colonized treaty ports, like kind of like how Hong Kong was British, like that. Like we yeah. have one in Sri Lanka. Uh, Athens is one. There's one in Athens. There's right, quite a yeah. few. But yeah, they probably have like a decent sized military presence, enough that they're not going to get booted out. Yeah. And they will probably like intervene if like one of their ports or some of their infrastructure is under threat. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. China is relatively a new player to uh, the world military stage, so it'll be interesting to see how how their training has come into play and how well they're prepared to take on actual uh, combatants. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see because normally China's intervention has been pretty pretty blunt, like especially under Mao. It was pretty, uh, oh, let's just invade these people. But now they can't really do that anymore. They have a sort of new identity. Yeah. The nation, yeah. It's also been interesting seeing uh, increasing Russian involvement in the Arctic. So it looks like with global warming, there's a couple of reasons to be interested in that region because shipping routes are now almost ready to be open there because of the increased global warming. And there's about 30% of the world's oil reserves are located within Arctic regions. Yeah, so everybody wants a piece of the pie. Yeah, it's, Russians already have some towns there that i know they have a coal mining town within the arctic circle that actually loses a lot of money for them but it's it's there for them to assert their dominance and lay a claim to the arctic region <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry that was a serious statement but when you said the coal mining town asserting their dominance i'm just imagining putin like t-posing over the arctic <laughs> no, it's, and that island is um I forget what it's called, but it's north of Iceland. Islands? It's well, there's, like, there's quite a few islands that Russia actually owns in the Arctic Circle. Yeah, but the this one, it's um, technically an international island. And if you sign a treaty, the treaty that they did in the 1930s, technically, as long as you sign the treaty, anyone can own it. So the Russians have signed the Svalbard. Uh, so, escaping my mind. so if you sign this treaty, you can build whatever you want, but there's no military presence allowed. So they have this massive coal mining operation there that loses them a lot of money per year, but it's there just so they already have a um, so they already have a presence there, and they actually just yeah, like they re renovated their embassy there, which they have in Svalbard. They recently did huh. that a year or two ago. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. They're probably trying to present themselves as like the legitimate government of the Arctic. And it's the thing about the Arctic: no one other than the U.S. can really, uh, uh, like, challenge them over it. Yeah, I don't think I don't see Canada doing too much to oppose the Russians there. Or if they wanted to, they wouldn't really be able to. Canada can't. Probably can't really do much to oppose the Russians. No, um, I mean it's mostly up to the U.S. and the honestly, the U.S. is in too much internal chaos to really do much. Yeah, they're a bit occupied at the moment to worry too much about the Arctic. Yeah, that's another thing. As we are recording this, the cup or day or two ago, that Biden was announced as the definite winner of the U.S. presidential election. So yeah. It'll be interesting to see what his policies are on the Russians and the Chinese. I feel like Biden's going to try and pursue a policy of like trying to undo Trump's foreign policy decisions, kind of. Yeah, well, Trump has certainly burned a lot of bridges, especially yeah. in terms of foreign relations. Yeah, he uh, 
detente with China might be possible under Biden, but they'd probably have to make some concessions in the trade war. Yeah. And I'm not sure if they enjoy such to as toasty relations as with Putin in the past. Yeah, but it'll it'll be interesting to see with the possible uh, succession of Putin as the Russian leader. It'll be different, especially interesting to see who comes to replace him. Yeah, it'll be interesting. After his almost twenty-year-long reign. Uh, I mean, he might just have a puppet president like he did before. Like I forget the guy's name, but the Russian constitution said that hey, there's only a certain amount of. You can only be president for a certain amount of time. Right? Oh, yeah. Dmitry Medvedev, Medvedev, right? You can only be president for eight years. So Putin basically had a puppet president as Dmitry Medvedev for four years and then came back elected. Yeah. I think it was Dmitry Medvedev. I'm pretty sure you're right, yeah. yeah. But it'll be definitely interesting to see if China with their expanding international ambitions and Russia with their seeming revival of their Cold War ambitions will ever make some sort of uh, more connected alliance than they already have. Yeah, I mean, China's like essentially assembling themselves a block. Like, yeah. And they've laid claim to the Arctic too. I don't know how much claim they actually scientifically have, but they have released a paper stating their ambitions in the Arctic and that the Arctic I mean, region is essential to their welfare as a nation. I mean, China essentially has their own little like economic block, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And with the new trade routes opening in the Arctic with global warming, China's able to actually ship through there 10 to 15 days faster than if they were to go through the um, Suez Canal. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose we'll see. That ends up going. But yeah, I mean, uh, I think they're probably going to have to create some, like the UN is probably going to have to create some kind of legislation to deal with how the Arctic, like the Arctic Sea shipping road is going to work. Yeah, it'll be definitely interesting to see Biden's approach to the UN as well, because Donald Trump has been rather like separationist from the UN. Yeah, I feel like Biden in his like sort of, Biden's going to probably try and reconnect with the UN, but he might be too busy at home, to be honest. Yeah, it, I think it might be really important for him, too, because the UN seems to be losing a lot of their influence without the backing of the US. The US, the UN never really had much influence to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, like, like when genocides were happening, they couldn't really do much to stop them. All they could do was sort of stand there and ask people to stop, please. Like, the UN never yeah. really had much influence. They'll just have even less now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose we'll see. Um, I feel like a stronger UN would honestly is something the world needs right now. Yeah. Yeah, especially with the Amazon rainforest, a lot of people aren't talking about this, but there's actually a group of people, or a wide group of people, who think that the UN should take control of the Amazon rainforest. Because it is a, Brazil owning it. Yeah, because Brazil is not taking very good care of it, and the produces a large chunk of the world's oxygen. So if we keep losing it how, as we have been, it'll consequences will not be good. Yeah, no, because I don't think Brazil can adequately fight the wildfires going on. And they're, like, almost unrestricted uh, logging. Yeah. That's yeah, not great. I'm looking so, at some images right now, and damn, it's, like, really bad in the Amazon rainforest. I know. Yeah. Situation is not too great there. Well, I don't know. We'll see. Hopefully, we'll find some other way to refine oxygen, or at least just like leave it be. Yeah, hopefully, there's some the forest. Yeah. developments with 
artificial photosynthesis that have been experiments around them that have been coming or being carried out for quite a while now. And I mean, like, if the if the, maybe if we just if Brazil input, implements some more responsible logging practices, like Canada has a policy, you have to plant two trees for every one you cut down. Yeah, that's been working quite well. Yeah, just like try and have a more sustainable logging policy. The problem with the Amazon rainforest, though, is it's so diverse that you can't just carry around seeds because it varies very differently, like depending on like which area you are in it. So, and it's just the amount of different trees. So, like in the Amazon rainforest as well, because in Canada, if you're just going through, you're just going to chop down a few spruce trees. So you plant a few spruce tree seeds, but in the Amazon, you're going to come across like 200, 300 different varieties of trees that you're going to be cutting down in a day. And there's no really way to, not really a effective way to like record and make sure you're sowing the right seeds. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I don't know. And we can't just like tell Brazil that they can't cut down the Amazon anymore because that would just absolutely delimitate their economy. Yeah. I think Brazil's pretty paralyzed by the COVID crisis. There yeah, it is. If I'm correct, it, they're the second they're hardest hit behind the United States. Yeah, there's the second hardest. Russia's also very hit very hard, actually. Yeah, they've said that they have a vaccine in production, but I haven't heard too much more about that. Oh, I believe uh, Putin said they were releasing a vaccine, and he injected his daughter with it. Yeah, so if you were to do that, it must be, there must be some evidence that it works. The Russia's lead doctor on the team did resign over what he quoted as gross violations of human rights being violated in hmm. the study and production of the vaccine. Hmm. I mean, apparently there's a there's some vaccines, about 10 or so, I think, a Chinese one, I think there's a Cuban one. Um, oh my god. I think the Cuban one is called, like, Solidarity or something. What? Sounds like, Cuba, that... like, Cuba made a vaccine. That name just sounds like it's from like a like a YA zombie novel. I know. Wait, let me let me double check the name. Uh, Cuban vaccine name. Let's see what's it called? Uh, Cuba's drilling regime. I find it interesting that horseshoe crab is the major ingredient in all of, in most of the upcoming COVID vaccines. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, horseshoe crabs are pretty old, so. Apparently, oh, yeah. they're immune to a lot of diseases because they've been relatively unchanged for quite a while. Yeah, they're like older than the dinosaurs. They've been around. Oh, it, it's called time. Sovereign. The, va the vaccine is called Soberana or Sovereign. Huh. Uh, definitely some uh, YA dystopian novel vibes. Yeah, it is. To be fair, Cuba. Um, I mean, to be fair, the Cuba is kind of a YA dystopian novel. <laughs> but yeah. Um... Yeah, it's yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely an interesting global situation. Yeah, the world's kind of falling apart, to be honest, but eh, we'll see. Just we'll see who comes bit. out on top. Maybe the absence of Trump will bring a bit of stability, but The absence of Trump, hopefully. We'll see, I guess, but hopefully. Yeah, one major thing that no one's been talking about due to the U.S. election is the upcoming... What it seems to be a civil war in Ethiopia. In oh, the war. Oh yeah. yeah. There's reports of their uh, capital city, um, Addis Ababa, being attacked by fighter jets from the Ethiopian military, and it's been gone relatively unreported since because of the U.S. election. Uh, I believe it's the um, which region. 
Tigray, which is in the north of Ethiopia. They've had some troubles with yeah. um, rebels there for quite a while. I believe I remember reading somewhere Eritrea had like was backing them. I believe. Yeah. The Eritrea to yeah Eritrea there. They th almost threatened war with um, Eritrea not too long ago. Uh, I, I think feel like Eritrea wouldn't be able to hold them off for very long. No. Yeah. I think a lot of the reason that their civil war is so close is because a lot of their military is based in the Tigray region. So, yeah, and the Tigray has their own sort of like defense force, kind of, because it's an autonomous region with yeah, their own like quote-unquote army. Yeah, it's they have their yeah. like it, it's almost a semi-autonomous region, and it looks yeah. like a war is ramping up there with airstrikes being carried out on both sides, and uh, un unbacked but still claimed report of casualties being taken on both sides of air forces. Yeah, I'm not mean, sure how um, not sure how modern their air force is. Looks like they have some Su thirty threes, but I mean, we'll see. Oh, we'll see what happens. Sure. Hopefully, doesn't devolve. We don't need more conflict in the world at this point. Yeah, yeah. Ethiopian air force is quite uh, it's quite varied. Like, I mean, it's probably a bit patchwork, to be honest. Oh, yeah, they, they have, like, some, like, brand-new Su-27s, and then they're still operating MiG-21s and Fox Bats. Yeah. And it looks it's like... Kind of patchwork. Oh, 400-plus aircraft. That's not actually too bad. It's more than Canada has. <laughs> is... The glorious Canadian Air Force. With our 70 maybe working planes. Our pilots are probably better trained, though. It looks like the Ethiopian Air Force has actually been operating since around the 1920s. I mean, yeah, they had to fight off the Italians. Which is quite impressive. Actually, the history of Ethiopia is very interesting. Because yeah, after, the first in, after the first invasion, I can't remember who, but there was this uh, one chief who went on like a quest to modernize Ethiopia. Yeah. To make sure they wouldn't be invaded. And I mean, in the end, they were, but it took the Italians' gas attacks to beat them. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Looks like they're about to acquire some uh, French uh, Rafale fighter jets, too. Ho ho. Huh. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense in preparation for the upcoming war. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, definitely an interesting global situation. What do you think of the upcoming U.S. arms trade to Taiwan? Yeah, it's not going to result in anything. It's going to be just like when Mao did it. The U.S. and China are going to glare daggers at each other with military. The U.S. and Chinese militaries are going to glare daggers at each other. And then China's going to back down because they don't want to go to war with the states. Yeah. I mean, it'll hurt Xi a lot at home. But honestly, Xi has like a lot of popularity in China. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of, at least maybe this is coming to an end with Biden, but there's definitely been a lot of increasingly popular, uh, pop, or not populist, uh, nationalist leaders, or more nationalist leading, I wouldn't say nationalist, like um, like in Britain and, and the United States with the election of Donald Trump. And... Even Germany, the AFD alternative for Deutschland won a record amount of seats. Yeah. It's... Yeah, like... I feel like, like as somebody who is very left, uh, more left than standard politics, I find that this could be sort of a result of like people becoming disillusioned with the system. And when people become disillusioned with the system, they turn to radicalism, whether it be left wing or right wing. You know? Yeah, that's definitely been something we've been seeing a lot. I read a very interesting book that's saying the time of peace and great states is coming to an end because... Throughout human history, if you look at it, it's always been small city-states. Like, they used the medieval times as a big example where it's small city-states being invaded by each other and constantly invading each other in almost a constant state of war, but they predicted that as the future, which hopefully doesn't come to pass, but... Well, I don't think it will be... I don't think we can go back to city-states. National identities are too powerful. Yeah, it's like, especially... But it is... It is, like, the... 
leaderships of most countries like it or not. It, I think it is the end of large-scale conflicts between countries. Mm. I, don't, I don't think yeah. any more like, big ones. Yeah, I don't. I don't believe so. Unless like two two bullheaded leaders like clash, I don't think there will be any large conflicts between nations no. anymore. But I think we're entering a new era of isolationism potentially. Yeah. And sort of a renewed nationalism, and I think that's pretty concerning because like yeah, it's definitely a like scary. Private nationalism will always lead to war, regardless of the cost. Yeah. Like, it, yeah, it's just like nationalism and war, they go hand in hand. Like, there's nothing you can do to separate the two. No. Yeah, and it's read an interesting book. It's uh, another one. And it was by a former U.S. general, and they were talking about the... U.S. military and their need to adapt to fight more insurgent-based wars rather than large-scale conflicts. So they're talking about all their military hardware. They're talking about how the M1 Abrams tank is becoming obsolete because it was designed in the 1990s to fight Soviet T-72s, which aren't really encountered anymore, and instead they need to focus more on uh, faster and more uh, mine-resistant vehicles that are able to take out soft targets and personnel. It's very yeah, interesting. I mean, oh. Yeah, like the there's no purpose to fighting like large scale wars. Like the Russians and the Americans will never fight. They might encounter each other in some third world country battleground, but they'll never directly fight. And especially, I think that proxy wars might become a little less common because a lot of third world countries are lifting themselves up out of uh, poverty. Yeah, especially interesting about a lot of economists are talking about the rise of Africa. I think I think it was Bloomberg who had an like a article about that investors should be looking for opportunities in Africa because it's the next world stage. Yeah, like for example, uh, Nigeria. Nigeria is exploding. Yeah. It's also interesting to think that Europe's most heavily fortified border is in Morocco with a Spanish-controlled town of Malia. <laughs> I mean, to be fair... That does make sense. The EU, like, internally is pretty, like, well, like, they're pretty calm with each other. There's no real reason to guard those borders, especially, like, hard. Yeah, it's, and the Moroccans help enforce the border on the other side with Spain, because they're, I think Morocco's largest um, target of exports is the EU, so. Yeah, I mean, Spain and Morocco are I don't know. They, I don't know much about them, but I don't think they dislike each other that much. No, I think they're pretty close allies. Yeah. On a different note, it's, it's interesting to think about the F-35 I was reading an article on, and it's, it's been how much... I think they spent around $7 billion on the development of it, and how it's almost oh. F... Like almost obsolete by this point because in the Abrams, no, the F thirty five fighter jet. Oh wait, why is it obsolete? In dogfight simulations, the F fifteen can turn faster than it, move faster, fly faster, and F thirty five is a fighter craft developed around stealth, um, avoiding enemy aircraft, and being able to outsmart enemies in a dogfight. But the new direction of war is really not going to have much of a purpose. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Like, you're going to be fighting, like, outdated old aircraft. There's no real point to having, like, yeah. Yeah, especially, it's very interesting that new doesn't always mean better, especially that's a big case with the A-10 Warthog, because that was designed in the 1980s, and the U.S. general staff have been trying to retire it for forever, but it's proved so effective in the Middle East that they haven't been able to. Nice. <laughs> yeah, Especially, like, sometimes older is better. And case. another thing to think about is the last air-to-air dogfight engagement was in 2016 in Greece. Well, there's two counts in 2016, and they're strikingly similar. So the first one's in Greece, where a MiG-21 from the 70s shot down two Turkish F-16s. And the other yeah, one I mean- was in... Ukraine, where a Ukrainian MiG-21 shot down two 
or shot down an SU-27. I mean, the thing is that in the case of the first one, the Russia, the Soviets and the Americans had very different design philosophies when it came to planes. Soviet planes tended to be more maneuverable. And well, American planes tended to be have better missile systems because the American doctrine was to strike them down from far away. And Soviet doctrine was more dogfight based. Yeah, it's interesting because the creator of the Top Gun school, he was talking about how in Vietnam, they didn't. They stopped teaching dogfights in the fighter schools, and they just went for, okay, you have your F four, you hit them with a missile from fifty kilometers away, and then you fly out of there. And it was getting, it was making the American fighter pilots take considerable casualties because the missile systems failed quite a lot. Yeah, and they had to create the Top Gun school so American fighter pilots could learn how to dogfight again and. Because the F-4, I think, was designed pretty much solely around being able to be equipped with long-range missiles. But when it came yeah. up against Soviet aircraft, it it didn't do too well until they started changing their tactics towards uh, being able to uh, climb higher and outmaneuver the... Or not outmaneuver, but outfly the Soviet aircraft. Yeah, and I know this is a slightly outdated example, but there was a slightly similar situation with the Zero... The old Japanese Zero. The Zero was an incredibly yeah. maneuverable plane. It and it, could, was, like, quite, it yeah. was quite heavily armed for the time, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maneuverability is more important in dogfights. But, yeah, like, if um, if an American plane, like, caught a Soviet one from a distance away, yeah, that, that plane is going down. There's no chance for the Soviet one there. Yeah, it's, it's also interesting because in World War II, the... The Hellcat, which is the main American plane, the Hellcat and the Corsairs that came up against the Zeros, they're pretty much flying tanks. Like Those are heavily, heavily armed aircraft with considerable armor. So even if they did get passed by a Zero, they probably wouldn't get shut down. And the Zeros, like with Japan's lack of resources, they had little to no armor. And the, the fuselage, the metal sheeting was like paper thin. Yeah, I mean, they might have learned a bit from their experience in Germany. Because in Germany, they had a very they had to build very thick bomber planes to withstand like anti-air fire. Like if you look at a B-17 or like a super fortress, like damn, those things are massive, and they have like five guns on them. They're insane. Yeah, it's but it, they didn't work too well originally because their whole strategy was if you put a bunch of these together, their turret should be able to defend against German aircraft, but that didn't go so well in practice. Mm. They had to get yeah. uh, fighter escorts in order for them to become more effective. Yeah, but I don't know. They might have just taken those lessons from that from there anyways. I'm not entirely sure. But, but another, yeah, look, hmm? as like a, almost like as an opposite to that, in the Korean War, the B-29 Super Force was the second highest, or the tail gunner more specifically, was the second highest combat aircraft of, in the entire war. Behind the oh, Fury. More, the tail like gunners. Use or kills? With more kill, kills. The B twenty nine Super Fortress tail gunners had the second most amount of second highest number of kills in the Korean War. It's actually quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that, that plane is an absolute beast. Look at the size of it. I know it's, it's interesting how aviation during the Second World War just absolutely skyrocketed. From having like yeah. those countries' main aircraft with biplanes to like state-of-the-art jet fighters and pressurized cabins and massive bomb loads. Yeah, I mean there was essentially an air like a arms race in this air. Yeah, it's funny because each nation has sort of like a pattern to the way they design their planes. Yeah, that is yeah. that is interesting to think about. Like an like an equipment philosophy in a way. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, the Germans were all mainly way uh, over-machined and very heavily armored. Like, if you look at their tanks, like, they're all absolutely, like, especially in later war, they're all absolutely massive. And, like, yeah. largest uh, calibers of guns that are available at the time. And it's absolutely well, huge really fit their situation, did it? Because they were running out of fuel and resources, and it probably would have been better for them to just build a lot of lighter tanks. Yeah. Well, by late war, I think the 
probably like it would have been better to have more of a mix. I think their main problem though is over engineering because the main like downfall of the average tiger tank was transmission snapped, can't move it anymore, so you had to abandon it. Yeah, but I mean the problem with larger tanks, especially late war, is just absolute air superiority in both sides for the enemy. So they would just get shot down by a Stuka. No, not a Stuka. They would get shot down by close air support if like. Yeah, it's like the British developed this strategy of cab rank, which was whenever they flew an attack, they just get a bunch of rocket-armed typhoons to fly around in the air. Whenever they spotted a tiger, they just call them up. Yeah, exactly. Like, it didn't really make sense for them. I mean, the Germans did have like the one jet fighter they made, like couple. Yeah, but they 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 even like they they trashed that almost too because Hitler ordered it to be used as a ground fighter or in a ground attack fighter. Which made it completely useless. That kind of defeats the purpose. I know. Yeah. But it was, it's interesting because I was I was reading this book about like weird moments in history, and it was like talking about Hitler's doctor's like records, and he had him on over eighty drugs. Yeah, like, I mean, per day. Isn't that why his hand was like able to keep so straight? This man was on so many methamphetamines. Yeah. Yeah. That's why Germany lost the war. Hitler used all the resources to fund his many drug addictions. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting. Actually, fun fact, apparently uh, after the original German attack, Stalin was like fully expecting the committee to vote him out <laughs> oh, really? as unfit to rule. Yeah. And he was like he was like waiting for it, but they just didn't. Hmm. That is pretty interesting. Yeah, but yeah, honestly, the Germans kind of started a war. They would never, they could never really win with no. that, you know. Like even up against only the UK, they could never beat the UK. Like the Germans, the German economy was basically running on fumes. Yeah, it's like, and the US would always inevitably support the UK. Yeah, like the US doesn't want to support like a freaking fascists who are like genociding a lot of people in their territory it's like in world war one though that's a lot more of an interesting story because the u.s were actually quite like flip-flop on the who they're going to ally with they were selling arms to both sides they were like there was a lot of debate in the general populace and then the british started cranking out their propaganda and it turned the tide or at least in the perspective of the u.s in the in the british favor yeah, I mean, like, I know for the First World War, actually, Germany had a very real chance to win that. They, like, very much could have won. Because during the, like, at that time, the German Empire was a superpower. It was, like, a powerful country. But by World yeah, War Two, at World War Two, Germany was just an angry little rump state that was running on basically slave labor. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to think that the German army was the least mechanized out of anyone in World War uh, to even the like the in Belgium the the Belgian army was more like technologically advanced than the Germans in terms of numbers like it, obviously the Germans like their actual technology was more technologically advanced but the proportion like, the Belgians had more like trucks than what they did horses because the majority of the German arm, army was transported by horses and mules and an interesting statistic is their main machine gun that they used was the MG08, which is left over from World War One? Yeah, like, like a country can't like it's not really possible to like come back from reparations and an economic depression that severe and have a actual functioning economy. Like they they weren't able to produce enough. They weren't able to supply their troops. Uh, and to be fair, like German high command was very lacking the realities of their situation most of the time. Yeah. Like, like Rommel driving through North Africa with no regard to logistics or supplies. Yeah. Don't worry. The, the tanks will supply themselves. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how like Patton was almost the most like successful user of the Blitzkrieg strategy by end war. He was... I mean, Blitzkrieg was never even like a technical strategy. It was more the that Germans like 
because before the Germans had a strategy that was like concentrated attacks to break through enemy lines. I forget the name of it. It's a very long German word. That was just sort of the logical next step for them. Blitzkrieg. Yeah, it's it's more of like a almost like a viewpoint or like a understanding of tactics than an actual strategy. Yeah, because it's like very variable. It's mostly the it like the doctrine is just the idea of punch everything you have to create a breakthrough, then encircle as you move forwards. Yeah, that it's like very logistically poorly planned strategy. I mean, it is possible to succeed in it logistically. You just need to be prepared. Like, you can use air operations to drop more supplies. Uh, like, I think actually one of the most interesting strategies is Soviet deep battle. It's actually like one of the most advanced doctrines of the Second World War. What's it all about? Like, deep operation, if I remember correctly, it was mostly about, like, sort of deception. Like, the idea right. was that... Yeah, like, the idea was that you had to, like, keep the enemy guessing where you would attack before you punched through and tried to, like, encircle them. Like, the way the Soviets sort of advanced was they would advance for a while, wait for the supplies to catch up, and then keep going in late war. Yeah, it's, it's funny to think how, by, like, 1945, the Soviets had more soldiers than the Germans had 88, 88 rounds. <laughs> they really did have more soldiers than they had guns. But there's, like, a lot of myths about the Soviets. Like, one, the Soviet army was actually very well-equipped. Well, like better equipped than their German counterparts for most of the war. Yeah, by after the German invasion. Yeah. And yeah. Not really in like, terms of medical supplies, but... Who needs medical supplies? You have a gun, comrade. Oh, yeah. And, like, the Soviet Air Force is actually absolutely massive. <laughs> it's also funny to think that the T-34s actually broke down a lot. Like, yeah, but you almost, can build a lot of them. Almost just, as much as, almost just as much as the German tanks broke down, but its difference was you could just, you could fix a T-34 with some spare pipe and a wrench. Uh, like, well, the Germans need to drive it all the way back to Germany and get it fitted on a special crane. I, like, the Germans were more, um, sort of... Like, the Russian design philosophy was more the idea of reliability and, like... Simplicity. And yeah. Of, yeah. It's actually funny because that, like, led to weapons like the AK-47 is considered, like, the culmination of that design philosophy. And there's a reason so many countries have the AK-47 on their flag, because it's the tool of their freedom. Was it, like, uh, like six or... How many? I, I don't look this up, but it's... I know it was a surprising number. Uh, how many countries the AK, has the AK-47 on the forum flag? Uh, yeah, it's four countries. Yeah, I mean, it's an important thing for a lot of countries because thanks to that, uh, they can fight. Because the AK-47 is like the farmer's gun. Anybody can use it. It's simple to take apart and put stuff together. Like, yeah, that's, interesting. Russian... That's, um, that's one thing coming from, like, if you read a lot of books from soldiers serving in the Middle East, like their memoirs, it's, it's always talking about how it's stressful because almost everyone has an AK-47. Yeah. Like, from personal experience, I haven't worked with an AK-47, but I used a slightly older Russian weapon, a Russian SKS, and it's, like, almost brainless to take apart. Like, you don't even need a screwdriver. <laughs> Actually, like, you don't even need a screwdriver. You can take it apart and put it back together and clean it, like, really, really easily. Yeah. Like, from my family in Cuba, they used to, in schools, they used to have to take apart and put back together AK-47s, and they'd race to see who could do it the fastest. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it is. It is a bit more interesting in the terms of Western versus Eastern design philosophy. Yeah, I feel like Western weapons tend to be a lot more, sort of, like, they're not as simple. But they tend to be able to do more when used properly. Yeah. They're built, yeah, they're built with that idea in mind. Like, this is the specific task for this specific weapon. 
Is it interesting recently that the XM series of weapons for the U.S. military was just canceled? Oh, really? Yeah, you know, like the futuristic-looking ones. Like they they canceled those. That's unfortunate. The XM series weapons? I think it's like XM something like the. Just look at U.S. military. Oh my god, that looks like a sci-fi gun. I know, right? Why are they so round? I don't know. <laughs> Why? Yeah, it, it turns out they like the stuff they already had is better. Yeah. Yeah, the XM25 is like a... They're a bit weird looking, but... Apparently it's just because it like... It had no real benefit. They were like about the same. The only benefit yeah, was it was like modular. Yeah, was... Yeah. You don't really need it to be that modular, especially with the U.S. Army's... Um... Like their logistic, or logistics are set up quite well. Yeah. What do you think about Space Force? Oh, actually, it's a actually it's probably one of Trump's only like intelligent decisions, in my personal opinion. It actually made a lot of sense. Yeah, it's, because be, the Space Force is a bit of a misnomer. Core. It's more of a cyber core. Yeah. Yeah, because like. Space is actually like a legitimate battleground because a lot of communications infrastructure is up there. Most uh, cosmonauts had a. This isn't for like actual warfare purposes, but most most um, uh, cosmonauts carried a shotgun into space. Isn't that because to like shoot bears once they landed? Yeah, because they would land in Siberia in the middle of the forest, so they needed to wait for like a couple hours for the helicopters to arrive. So they have to like defend themselves in the Russian wilderness. Also, that would hurt really bad. Like coming down instead of crashing into the ocean with the parachute, you just slam into the, just slam into the earth. Yeah, probably. I mean, nobody died, so it was probably all right. And the Russian uh, space uh, program actually has a higher like safety record than the U.S. one, or higher, I should say, unclassified safety record. Cause... Exactly. I mean, didn't they declassify the Soviet archives? Like um, on paper. But Fair. Yeah. Who knows? Nobody has ever been harmed in the Soviet space program, I swear. Except for, like, Laika. <laughs> Laika. It's funny how they got the chimpanzee and the... What's the other one? The it's like a it's like the U.S. Millet, the U.S. brought their chimpanzee in like a cat back from space. Huh. That's interesting. Chimpanzee actually lived reportedly unusually long. Hmm, that's a bit sad. I'm not going to lie. They just like replaced. <laughs> Oh yeah, it, it survives. That this one is abnormally long. Okay, bring in the next one. Uh, yeah, it's definitely interesting. This episode has gone quite off topic, but it's been interesting. Yeah, this one a bit all over the place. We went from like Russia's foreign policy to the Second World War to like what were you we even talking about now? Just like space monkeys. <laughs> it'll be a it'll be a good title for the episode. Russia, space monkeys. Russia, Ethiopia, and space monkeys. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I think the yeah, it is something. Another interesting historical fact that has no relation to anything that we've been talking about, but is Christmas. And that due to calendar changes, the actual date of Christmas is more likely closer to August. Interesting. Actually, you want to know another random unrelated history fact to literally anything? Sure. So basically, during the second year, the, during the Seven Years' War, Prussia was about to get like curb stomped by Austria, France, Russia, and Sweden at the same time. But Catherine the Great died. And her successor thought that Frederick the Great was like was a massive Frederick the Great fanboy. Yeah, yeah. Then 
Frederick the Great was like, okay, you're like an honorary Prussian soldier. And he was like, yay. And then he like carried Prussia throughout the war. <laughs> so, yeah. To, like that war was probably one of the most formative wars for like world history. Because that's why oh, like, yeah. Quebec is Canadian. <laughs> and like, I know. Why Germany exists. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. That's, I just thought that's kind of funny. Why Austria wasn't a major power really after that point? I think Austria was too inbred to like ever want to become a major power. <laughs> uh, poor also, Austria. Their main export that, like, is hot chocolate now. Huh. Austria has like fallen a long way. Yeah, I've actually had. Improved, though. I, I've had the Austrian hot chocolate. Is it any good? It's it's interesting. It's like a lot richer than other hot chocolates, but it's just it's funnier. That's that's like their main export. Yeah, I mean, you know what's weird to think about? At one point, Austria owned like Austria Hungary, the Netherlands, and Spain. Yeah, they they like bred their way into so many royal families. Well, it's not a bad strategy, but it it, it doesn't work for more than two hundred years. Yeah, you just like you know, the blood isn't pure enough. <laughs> <laughs> ah, medieval science. Very uh, very big brain. You see, the royal person has a baby with the other royal person, and their children have babies. Then it's double pure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's very interesting topic. Medieval monarchies. Medieval monarchies are interesting. It's funny. Napoleon created his own monarchy because he felt like it. I know. It, it, it's yeah. It's, it's also interesting how many European nations still retain their monarchies. Like. The von Hosenhollerns? Like, the Habsburgs. Habsburgs are still there in Austria. They're just like, a lot of royal families, they just kind of like, are just rich, and they just sort of live there, and like, yeah. just chill. Spain. I think yeah. Greece. The Spanish like, monarchy still has like, technically power. It's yeah. The British. Yeah. yeah, I don't... That's uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, that is. Well, we should probably close now. We've been talking about whatever for a while. Yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> been right, an interesting well, episode. All right, well, we'll that concludes episode two of our podcast series. If you have any comments or suggestions of what we should talk about, email us. You can find it on the Anchor website. You may be able to find our email on other websites or wherever you're listening. But if you can't find it, just check the Anchor website and email us. Any suggestions, comments, or whatever, we're, we're open to any ideas that you guys have. So thank you for listening. This concludes, a, thanks for second, yeah, thanks, this concludes for the second episode of the Big Brain Time podcast. See you guys later. See ya.